ora and welcome to the special episode of NZSA Live. The following content was recorded at our National Writers Forum in September 2018. We're releasing it during our 18 days of forum content to help New Zealand writers and authors through the national COVID-19 lockdown. Today's podcast features a keynote address by Lani Went Young. Lani is a writer, publisher, editor and journalist author of nine books, she was the 2018 Pacific Laureate and is co-founder of Samoa Planet. Talofa and good morning. It's an honor and a privilege for me to be here amongst so many storytellers who know well the joy of weaving words. Last night we heard about the history of PEN and the New Zealand Society of Authors, uh, some of its important advocacy work, and it was humbling for me to learn about those who have come before us and better appreciate their legacy that we enjoy today. So to the organizers of this forum, I say Fafzai Lava. Thank you for this invitation to share a few thoughts on the theme, writing to live and living to write. The great Toni Morrison said, and I think sure we're quite familiar with it, that if there's a book you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. But Ms. Morrison forgot to tell us what happens when you write that book of your heart and soul and nobody wants to publish it. <laughs> Eight years ago, I finished writing Telesar the first ever young adult novel with an all-Pacifica cast of characters set in Samoa, Tonga, and all over the Pacific. I tried to find a home for it. More than 30 different agents and publishers in New Zealand, Australia, and the USA rejected it. And the only reason why there aren't more rejections is because I just couldn't handle taking any more. <laughs> a New Zealand publisher was the only one to request the full manuscript. I was excited. I said to my family, this is it, kids. It's all going to happen now. They're going to read it, see how amazing it is. And then my book is going to be more famous than Harry Potter. <laughs> well, that's not what happened. First of all, they sat on it for months. Never a good sign. And then they got back to me with another rejection. They said, you know, we like it, but we just don't think that there's enough of a market here for your book. And the publishers in the room are probably like, oh, that's, that's a standard, that's a classic. <laughs> no market. There's more than 250,000 Pacific peoples living in New Zealand alone. We're the ethnic group with the largest percentage of young people. More than 46% of us are under 20 years old. I mean, that's a lot of young adults in New Zealand alone. Not, never mind, everywhere else. What this publisher was really saying then is that, not that there's not enough brown people who want to read YA, but that a book about brown teenagers would not sell. Why? Is it because brown people don't read? Is it because brown people don't buy books? Or is it because if they do buy books, they're certainly not going to buy young adult fantasy romance I would read about the glorious Daniel Tahi and his rippling tattooed muscles <laughs> glistening with coconut oil. <laughs> On that point, the publisher may have had, had, had good reason. 
When my mother found out what I'd written, she was unimpressed. <laughs> she said, sounds a bit trashy. Let's face it, Lani, you'll never win a Pulitzer Prize writing that. Mothers always know how to keep it real. Either way, according to the gatekeepers of traditional publishing, there was no home for my book. And so with the support of my very patient husband, I made a home for it myself through self-publishing. Planting it in the rich soil of that lush rainforest, in that wilderness that some call the margins, outside the establishment. Which is why being here today is so cool. Thank you. <laughs> there it has flourished and taken on a life of its own. I'm going to take my glasses off because I can't read. Okay. <laughs> Since the first book's release in 2011, readers of the Telesar series have taken it to places I never dreamed that it could go. But it took a lot of work because that publisher was actually correct. They could not have found a market for my book because for the simple fact that they had never marketed to Pacific Islander readers before and knew nothing about them. I wrote Telesar first of all for Pacifica teenagers. Well, I think as with most of us, I wrote it for me, for my 16-year-old self. And so I knew I had to take this story to them and to their families. Because if you know anything about our Pacific Island people, we're never just an individual. We are our mums and our dads and aunties and grandmas and cousins. So, we use social media and ebooks to take Telesar to Pacifica neighborhoods in New Zealand and all over the world. We connected with community leaders, church organizations, libraries, youth groups, Pacific Islander radio stations, and newspapers. Now, I'm a hermit. I think many writers are. I hate leaving my house. But for three years, I went everywhere. I did writer talks, book signings, and launches at schools, church halls, Saturday markets. I was in Otara markets. My mother was like, oh my gosh, what author is in Otara market? <laughs> Universities, book clubs, and even Pacific Islander grocery stores. In New Zealand, Australia, Hawaii, American Samoa, and the mainland USA. Every event was an opportunity to partner with other Pacifica artists so that every um, event was a, an opportunity to showcase their work as well in a celebration of music, dance, fashion, poetry, jewelry making, weaving, and fabulous island food, of course. Everywhere, I saw the transformative power wrought by stories written by us, about us, and for us as a community reveled in a story that they could see themselves in, that they could embrace as their own. To date, the book that publishers told me would not have an audience has been avidly read and embraced by thousands of people of all ages all over the world, and not just brown people. Yesterday we heard some discouraging words about Amazon and its impact on authors and bookstores. But speaking as a writer who was only able to reach an audience because of Amazon's platform, they are not the enemy, at least not to us. They and every other ebook publishing and distribution service, like Smashwords, Kobo, iBooks, Barnes and Noble, 
They are the game changers. Amazon and others like them may be making life difficult for traditional publishers, sorry, but they pay authors 70% royalties. That's a lot more money than 12%. Just putting it out there. <laughs> I tell every Pacifica writer and poet that I meet about self-publishing. Because until the traditional gatekeepers change the way that they see us and our marketability, I believe this is the fastest and most affordable way to take the stories of the blue continent to the world. But perhaps even more importantly, take it on our own terms. I recently signed with a fabulous New Zealand publisher for the print rights for the Telesar series, officially making me a hybrid author. They're going to take the series to new audiences, make sure it reaches new platforms, and I'm excited to have them bring their expertise to my books. But this would not have happened without Amazon and CreateSpace, their publishing platforms, and without eight years of some hard indie work. And that may be the first message that I bring to you from the wilderness, that there are many ways to be a writer and to take our stories to readers. Even when we have a publisher, we should be proactive in working with them. Question, critique, give suggestions. Now, while they may be the experts in what they do, nobody knows your book or your readers as well as you do. If we want to make a living with our writing, then we must be prepared to go outside our comfort zones and learn new things. We must believe in our work enough to keep writing and keep trying, even when the rejections pile up and our own mums are doubtful. To agents, publishers, and booksellers in the room, just a quiet message. There is a vast untapped market that is hungry for books, where Pacifica peoples are centered, where we are the mainstream and not the marginalized other. Now, we all know the importance of reading diverse books. You know, I mean, everybody needs to have diverse books to read. But you know, putting that aside, for all the noble great reasons why we need to do that, from a purely business, economic perspective, books written by Pacifica and Māori are good financial investments. And publishers, you know, we can say lots of noble things, but we're, you know, we're there to make money, okay? Because otherwise, what, how are you going to survive? The recent worldwide success of stories on screen like Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians and even um, Three Wise Cousins these are evidence of what can happen when the usually marginalized become the center. Magic happens, and you make a lot of money when magic happens. I would encourage publishers to actively recruit and mentor indigenous writers. I like what Hoya Publishing and the Māori Literature Trust is doing with the Te Papatupu program. The publishers of the New Zealand School Journal have done something similar in the past. They've had myself, together with Witi Iamaira and Joy Cowley, run a workshop and mentor new Pacifica and Māori writers so that we could do story, they could do stories for the school journal. Those are the kinds of programs that we need more of. Which brings me to my second message from the Milled Wilderness about living to write. 
Like many women who write, I wrote my earliest novels in between work, kids who always get sick when you don't want them to, um, and work, housework that just never ends. Writing happened in stolen moments. I would think, you know, if only I could be a full-time writer, what a joy that would be. The words I would write and the stories that would just flow. <laughs> and then the blessed day came when, yes, I was officially a full-time writer. We did the numbers. We thought, right, we can afford this. The children were old enough to clean up their own vomit. <laughs> the husband took over house elf duties. I even had an office, a beautiful self-contained unit in the front yard, a room of my own. I thought, let the orgasmic creativity begin. <laughs> but no, I couldn't write a damn thing. I went in that office every morning. I made charts of how many words I needed to write. I had important dates and publishing things on the calendar. I updated Facebook a lot. <laughs> I wrote blogs about how much I loved being a writer. And I lied on Twitter about how much fun I was having. But actual novel writing, it wasn't happening. My supportive husband saw me struggling. And so he gave me a pep talk based on wise counsel from his many years of running a construction company. And he said, Lonnie, I see you're having a problem. Here's what I do when things get hard. When I'm out there in the sun and we're pouring concrete, the sun is blazing, it's hot, I want to quit. But then I tell myself, Darren, if I don't finish this building, my children won't eat. <laughs> He said, Lonnie, that's what you have to do. When your book gets hard, you tell yourself, if I don't finish this book, my children won't eat. <laughs> the pressure. <laughs> I told him, excuse me, artists, we don't work that way. You don't understand our creative souls. But he was right, of course. Writing is work. And like all work, it can be boring exhausting, and that thing you dread doing. But like all work, it can also be thrilling. It can be incredibly rewarding, and that thing which gives you joy. If we want to succeed at it, i.e. actually finish books, then we must find the right balance between nurturing our creative souls and applying discipline to that creativity. I love what author Agatha Christie said about the writer work ethic. As we know, she, you know, she wrote like 80 plus novels and was basically really badass. And she said, there was a moment when I changed from an amateur to a professional. I assumed the burden of a profession, which is to write even when you don't want to, don't much like what you're writing, and aren't writing particularly well. And I aspire to be like that. Still working on it. Finally, writing is power. Several years ago, I was invited to speak at a school. And when I was done, a student leader got up to say a nice, a beautiful thank you speech. She said lots of things, including at the end, she said, thank you for coming to our school. Now we know that brown people can write books, not just white people. I was stunned. But looking back, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. What stories about Pacific Islander peoples 
is she seeing in the news, in her school curriculum? When, for example, we have New Zealand media describing us as leeches and our islands as hellholes, is it any wonder that a teenager would be so astounded to find that, hey, brown people, they actually write books? It is said that whoever tells the stories in a society controls it. Writing is power, and that means we as storytellers, we wield great influence and authority. It doesn't matter if we're writing romance, crime thrillers, or the next man Booker Prize winner. We can choose to either disrupt or uphold the status quo. We can choose to smash lazy stereotypes and surpass what Chimamanda Adichie called the danger of the single story. I challenge you today, just like I do to myself as well, to check every book you write to make sure it passes the Bechdel test, that most basic method for evaluating the portrayal of women in fiction, which asks, does your work feature at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man? <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's a really basic measurement. And let me tell you, something like Lord of the Rings fails miserably. <laughs> I invite you to try the DuVernay test, which looks at whether minorities, whether they be Pacific Islanders, African Americans, whether they have fully realized lives in your story rather than serving as scenery in a white story. For me as a Samoan writer, I also endeavor to ensure that my books have third gender characters who are complex people and not just there for comic relief. Because there's many taboos in our Pacific cultures around talking about sex, I make sure my characters have those conversations about the good and the bad. Everything from using contraceptives and having great sex in the bushes to breaking the silence and shame around abuse and family violence. When three different generations of a family come to a book signing and all tell me how much they love a story, and it has all those conversations in it, I am hopeful that seeds are being planted. Ursula K. Le Guin said that we have to rewrite the world, that resistance and change often begin in art. In this sense, then, writing is disruptive, and that can make it dangerous. Some people may see you as a threat, as a danger to their power, and to deeply rooted attitudes and beliefs. Some of you may know that I've been dealing this year with a lot of online abuse and harassment. It's taken a toll on me and my family. So much that I went quiet for a while. And you know, it's not until you can't write what you want to write that you most appreciate that freedom when it's taken away. When you have to self-censor because you're actually afraid um, of what could happen to you um, and to your family. So it was with great relief that I published my 10th book uh, earlier this month. I don't think it's the most amazing book I've ever written, but it's the book I'm most proud of. I wrote this book through people telling me to kill myself, that I should be beaten and drowned, that they were going to chop me up and drag my carcass in the street. While they said I should be gang raped and have my mouth silenced in all kinds of unpleasant ways, I wrote about our Samoan goddesses, fierce warriors, Women who fight to protect the earth, who can slash your throat with ease, but pause to bestow blessings of protection on newborn babies. 
and then go and happily sink illegal fishing boats. <laughs> I wrote about men who know how to love and respect such women and fight alongside them. While they called me a fat whore, an adulterer, who writes about things that no good Samoan woman should ever write about, I was swept away writing about romance, love that endures loss, and second chances at happiness. While they attacked my parents and my children, I wrote about Ainga, family, how a mother can love a child, how a father can sacrifice for his son, how a young man can forever be embraced in the alofa of his grandparents, even after they're long gone. So for me, my latest book is a testament of a commitment to write, even when there's 101 reasons not to. And so today I share this little reminder with you that writing and storytelling can be the light. Sorry. Even in the dark times, it can be an escape to take us away and an anchor to keep us focused on what truly matters. I know we've all had those times in our lives where writing is our sanctuary, our refuge. And I think sometimes we can take that for granted, that we do that. I'm so very grateful for the gift of writing, the lifeline that it can be for us. Because sometimes we are literally writing to stay alive. The magic is that when we share that writing, we can help inspire and empower others. We are writers, and that makes it, means we are change makers. As we write to live and live to write, I hope we can hold fast to the knowledge that with every dream we dream and every story we tell, we are rewriting the world. With our words, we can resist. We can sow seeds of change, one book at a time. New Zealand Society of Authors, Tipuni Kaituhi o Aotearoa, Pen NZ Incorporated, is the principal organisation representing writers in New Zealand. We want to continue to provide opportunities for you to grow in your professional development. That's why we've started NZSA Web Workshops. Visit our website, authors.org.nz, to find out about these opportunities. Experienced writers and teachers will lead them. We hope that they help you to grow as a writer and face whatever tomorrow brings. Our website again is authors.org.nz.